0: Hello, wonderful listener, and welcome to episode 70, Alzheimer's Cures and Memory Pills. Do they work? Spoiler alert, they don't, but I'll get to that in a second. My name is Rita Jablonski, and I am your host for the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast. This is the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast where I explain how caregivers can lovingly respond to confusing or challenging behaviors and reconnect with family members living with dementia. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. In today's episode, I first want to talk about a book that periodically shows up on social media or someone will find it on Amazon and be so super excited and will send pictures of it to other relatives who are taking care of family members and say, oh, check this out. And the book I'm referring to is written by Dale Bredesen and it's called The End of Alzheimer's the first program to prevent and reverse cognitive decline. Now, to be fair, Dr. Bredesen has received funding from the National Institutes of Health and has designed research. However, this is another example of hype clouding the research findings. Let me give you some background. Cognitive decline is not Alzheimer's disease. So right there, that title is misleading. People who have Alzheimer's dementia may experience cognitive decline. I can have cognitive decline that has nothing to do with Alzheimer's. It could be due to some reversible factors and cognition is more than just memory and recall cognition involves attention concentration executive abilities like planning and implementing it involves judgment and retrieval anything that anything that interferes with any of those domains are going to cause cognitive issues So for example, last night I had some trouble sleeping because Amira and Lady Grey, they're they're, they're getting better by the way. It's only been almost three months now that Lady Grey joined our family, but Lady Grey likes to sneak under the covers and Amira is still not sure if she wants to share her bed with the newest addition. So Lady Grey happily snuck under the covers last night, was all curled up, and Amira was snoring. And somewhere in the middle of the night, Amira figured out that Lady Grey was in bed. And next thing I know, World War Three erupts, and both Lady Grey and Amira are going at it. With uh, Lady Grey's under the covers. Amira's trying to jump on her. Lady Grey runs out. Amira takes off, and I'm wide awake because they also managed to take the comforter off the bed. Lady gray jumped on the bureau to escape Amira, took out my tray with all my jewelry on it. So, you know, about two o'clock in the morning at the Jablonski household, it sounded like a tornado got loose in my room. Therefore I didn't sleep real well. And this morning, because I was tired, I had trouble with paying attention and concentrating it wasn't cognitive decline. It was just a situation. So we all have that. And those of you who are parents, you know that your kids, you think they're listening, but they're not. And they're just going, "Mm mm-hmm or they're just automatically responding. And then you ask them later, why didn't you clean your room? I asked you to clean your room and they have no recall so many life factors and daily factors can cause fluctuations in those domains that all contribute to cognitive abilities. The next thing I want to talk about is that we know there are protective factors to prevent Alzheimer's dementia and how, and there's also protective factors that can prevent cardiovascular disease which is vascular dementia. But getting back to some possible protective factors for Alzheimer's dementia studies have shown correlations between higher levels of education and lowered risk. Now correlation is not causation. It just means two things happen. Physical activity is protective. A diet rich in antioxidants has shown to be protective. Anti-inflammatory drug use over time has found to be somewhat protective, as are cholesterol-lowering drugs and the following of the Mediterranean diet, which then gets back to a diet rich in antioxidants and foods that are not inflammatory. And if you don't know, the Mediterranean diet is a way of eating that, in which a lot of your fats come from plant sources like olives. The diet is rich in lean proteins, especially fish and chicken, and also rich in fruits and vegetables. And those are all great ways of eating. Now, we know there are known contributors to fuzzy thinking. Insufficient quality or quantity of sleep. I was fortunate. That was one night, and hopefully tonight they'll be calmer. But if you consistently get poor sleep, both poor quantity and poor quality, you do have some issues with your cognition. Vitamin deficiencies are known to cause problems with cognition, especially B12 and D3. Hypothyroidism, that is a thyroid gland that isn't working very well. When your thyroid gland isn't producing enough of your thyroid hormone, a lot of your body systems slow down, including your ability to think and process. Poor oxygenation can cause problems with thinking. It makes sense. There's no, there's not enough oxygen getting to the neurons. So people with chronic lung disease and people with anemia may have times that if they were given neuropsychological testing, they may not do so well. Low blood sugar causes problems, thinking anxiety and depression interfere with cognitive abilities, and that is well known and has been demonstrated across so many studies, especially depression in older adults. And high homocysteine levels have been shown to contribute to fuzzy thinking. And you're saying, what is homocysteine? It is an amino acid found in your blood plasma. You need certain B vitamins like folic acid, Vitamin B6, which is pyroxidine, and vitamin B12, cyanocobalamin, to break down homocysteine. So a diet that is deficient in your vitamin Bs will cause elevated amounts of homocysteine. And if you have too much, homocysteine is thought... To scar the inside of blood vessels and cause clots and blockages. And that contributes to what's called vascular dementia, which is the damage to blood vessels in the brain. You don't get enough nutrients or oxygen and neurons die off. But the difference is when you look at an MRI, you can see certain patterns that are more indicative of vascular disease, and then you have other biomarkers, other patterns of brain shrinkage that is usually aligned with Alzheimer's, dementia. But there is more and more research examining how homocysteine and other proteins that go a little crazy and you maybe start to fold in on themselves or somehow become abnormal, maybe hurting neurons. Now, having said all that, I want to get back to that book about the end of Alzheimer's. Dr. Bredesen developed metabolic enhancement for neurodegeneration or the MEND data. And what's deceiving is there are multiple publications all off of the same data. And a lot of wit, a lot of the items that are included in the MEND protocol, we know we've known for decades that some of these things help preserve cognitive abilities. So one of the components of the MEND diet is a diet that includes foods that have low glycemic indexes, which means when they're digested, you have a steady pattern of glucose being released into the bloodstream, stream, not like a giant surge. And then you, your body secretes too much insulin, and then you have a drop in the blood sugar. Diet that ha- contains foods that have low inflammatory burdens, processed foods, sugar, or or sugary foods. These are foods that cause inflammation in the body. Also diets that have more of a low grain component. So the protocol was advocating a diet that contained predominantly minimal grain-based foods and foods that had low glycemic and low inflammatory indexes. It also included fasting 12 hours each night, starting three hours before bedtime, which makes sense because if you eat real close to bedtime, you have poor sleep because your body is busy trying to digest. The protocol caused for stress reduction, such as engaging in yoga or meditation daily. Adequate sleep, eight plus hours each night. And physical activity, 30 to 60 minutes a day, four to six days a week. Also controlling one's blood sugar, controlling one's A1C. Addressing any hormone imbalances like providing thyroid supplements if the thyroid gland was not functioning. Also providing supplements such as B vitamins, fish oil, and various minerals. Honestly, if you're eating a healthy diet or if you're eating a more of a Mediterranean based diet, you should be getting all of these vitamins, but why not? So he recommended supplements. So here's how it translates. Low glycemic, low inflammatory, low grain diets improve sleep. They also prevent hypoglycemia fasting 12 hours each night, starting three hours before bedtime also contributes to sufficient quality and quantity of sleep. It also can prevent hypoglycemia, stress reduction practices such as yoga and meditation combined with physical activity, all are important in reducing anxiety and depression. In fact, there are some studies out there that have demonstrated that consistent physical activity may be as beneficial as medication in some individuals. Adequate sleep at eight plus hours each night that addresses the risk for fuzzy thinking of insufficient quality and quantity of sleep controlling a1c is also important for brain health and cardiovascular health in the brain addressing hormone imbalances fixes any cognitive slowing due to hypothyroidism and also last but not least supplements such as b vitamins and fish oil can also contribute to lowering homocysteine levels. Okay. I'm going to take a quick break and when I come back, I'm going to talk more about the MEND protocol and some of the studies that were published that tested this protocol. The studies that rather the study that Dr. Bradison reported involved 10 people. Now, a study with 10 people, that's called a pilot. And what one is supposed to do is follow up with a randomized clinical trial in which individuals are with the cognitive impairment or probable Alzheimer's would get the sham treatment or usual care while others are on the protocol and you compare what happens between the two. But this study had 10 subjects and six were classified as mild cognitive impairment and four were those with probable Alzheimer's disease. Those individuals who were classified as having mild cognitive impairment performed better on neuropsych testing after they followed this protocol and let's face it i've done neuropsychological testing because i was part of a study and we always go through the study procedures ourselves to make sure there's no screw-ups or anything and the neuropsychological testing was several hours and if you go into one of these things with inadequate sleep not feeling so hot You're not going to do real well. Your performance is going to be less than it normally would be. So what, so anyway, the people did better on neuropsych testing and those with probable Alzheimer's dementia, all four did better on screening tests. But here's the thing, doing slightly better doesn't necessarily mean there's a clinical difference. There's something called the Montreal cognitive assessment, and I use that a lot when people first come into the the clinic, because the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Test with the MOCA, it does a really good job of testing all of the domains, especially executive function, which the mini mental state exam doesn't really do a great job capturing executive abilities. And the average for the four people, they went from And 19, which is, which indicates the MOCA is a screening test and a score of 19 indicates an abnormal performance on the MOCA. The highest you can have on a MOCA is 30 points and anything 26 points or lower indicates the need for further evaluation and testing. But the average changed from a 19 to a 21. That is known as a clinically insignificant finding because simply recalling an extra word or drawing a cube a little better can change your score. It's not like it it took the MOCA scores and they went from scores indicating actually moderate dementia to scores indicating mild. And I am simplifying this a bit because you don't look at just one score and say, oh yes, they're mild, moderate, or severe. But again, a a MOCA score of 19 improving to 21 isn't that big of a deal. It's like having high blood pressure and instead of 150 over 80 you now improve to 145 over 80 but you're still in the danger zone for high blood pressure it didn't cure your blood pressure so when you look at the details of the published findings while that was nice because it indicated that there are factors that affect cognition and those factors can be improved with certain lifestyle changes. No one's Alzheimer's was cured. Another topic I want to talk about are the products that you see on television, on commercials, claiming to dramatically improve memory, to make people sharper. In 2019, the FDA took action against 17 companies for illegally selling products claiming to treat Alzheimer's disease. This is big business. And some of these supplements were nothing more than caffeine. So the people felt more alert. But if you're taking caffeine pills, of course, you're going to feel more alert. Another product I want to address because I have people in the clinic asking me all the time is Prevagen. Prevagen's active ingredient is called apocurin and it is a protein derived from jellyfish. But once you ingest it, the protein degrades into amino acids. Once ingested, the protein doesn't stay active in your body. And the Madison memory study involved 218 adults, 40 to 90 years of age with self-reported memory problems. And the tests used to assess changes in cognition were not standardized tests that everybody else uses. And also the company paid for the test. Anytime I see research studies conducted by the company that would benefit from the product versus a third party, I become highly suspicious. If you want to take it, go ahead. But I haven't seen anybody in clinic do better from that uh, supplement. And if you read the small print, they have the usual FDA disclaimer. Another interesting question I get asked a lot is what about the ketogenic diet and or the modified Atkins. These are diets that are super high in fat, anywhere from 70 to 90% fat. Protein is limited anywhere from 7 to 25% depending on which diet you're following and carbs Can be anywhere from 5 to 20%, again, depending on which version that you're following. And there are people out there who've lost lots and lots of weight with ketogenic diets. The concern is these diets, especially if you're using them in someone living with dementia, you run the risk, you increase the risk of dehydration, hepatitis, pancreatitis low blood sugar and low salt, low sodium or hyponatremia, both of which increase confusion. And long-term use of ketogenic diets increased risks for hypertriglyceridemia, which is higher triglycerides, which increase a risk for stroke and heart disease, high levels of cholesterol, which also increase risk for stroke and heart disease reduced bone mineral density, kidney stones, and increased risk of death from irregular heartbeat. So again, there might be some benefits to lowering carbohydrate intake, but not to the point of going into ketosis. So for those who are thinking, oh, the ketogenic diet will help improve my brain function not necessarily. Your best bet is the Mediterranean diet, lots of fruits, fresh fruits and vegetables, physical activity, and enough sleep and handling stressors. All the things grandma told you to do years and years ago. Thank you for listening to episode 70, and I hope you found this information helpful. If you are dealing with dementia behaviors and you're feeling overwhelmed, or if you have a family member who you are watching struggle as a caregiver, I do have some openings for individuals for one-on-one coaching with one-on-one coaching. I use a program called click meeting. It's very similar to zoom up to four participants can participate plus me And this is really great because in many families, it might be several adult children or it might be a couple of siblings or some mix of family members who are all involved in the care of the person living with dementia. And this way, everyone's hearing the same thing and we can all get on the same page. And one hour of a consultation with me may save you months and months of aggravation. If you are interested in working with me, you can email me. I have my email in the show notes below, rita.jablonski at gmail.com. I record the sessions and send you a link to them so you can listen to what we discussed and watch the recorded video over and over again to help you address the problem. If you like the podcast, but you would prefer to have all this information at your fingertips in an easy to find format. My book make dementia your bitch is also available on Amazon. And February 17th will be it's one year anniversary of being published and available on Amazon. Can't believe it's, in a year. Okay, everybody, take care of yourselves, and together we're going to make dementia our bitch. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia, and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your Bee, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.